I knew this woman kind of loved me, but I didn't know what love was, and I was a dumbass. And so similarly, I didn't really know what I was getting into completely when I joined the Gorillas. I just knew I wanted to do something more than just help refugees and stuff. I wanted to fight fascists. For some people, their life's work is a long, messy, and even dangerous road. So what prompts people to put themselves in harm's way for the sake of others? Hi, this is Diana Burnell O'Leary with Job Talk Weekly. I had a fascinating conversation with Roberto Lovato, a longtime advocate for Latino voices and the people of El Salvador. He is a journalist, educator, and author of a new book, Unforgetting. We talk about his experiences and the passion and commitment that has led him to lead a life of advocacy. Please notice that we checked the explicit box today because he does not hold back. Okay, here we go. Hey, Roberto, welcome to Job Talk Weekly. Happy to be with you. After how many years? A lot of years. It's been way too long. And I did finish your book, Unforgetting. We will have a link to it in the show notes. Actually, I bought two copies because I did go to bookshop.org, which is your favorite place. Um, But I really want to talk about how you came to write a memoir and put yourself in the story because you had been covering El Salvador for many years, your, your family's native land. So what prompted you in 2015 to sit down and start writing the memoir? Well, it was a confluence of factors, uh, one of which is my need to just, my, my desire to tell my own story. I had a lot of, I grew up with a lot of secrets, as you can read in the book. Yeah. I'm not going to give away all the secrets. No. But let's just say that I'm here, on, I'm here in San Francisco. I'm right on Mission Street right now where my office is. And, you know, I was, I grew up like four blocks from here, right down the street from the projects. And I grew up in a living room where every Buddy and my mom's family had a picture, the my my grandmother, cousins, nieces, nephews, dog, everybody had a picture in the living room. And there was only one picture of my dad's family, my abuelita, Mama Te, my grandmother. So growing up, you know, Salvadoran, you grow up with a lot of secrets. And I get you get tired of it because repression has a lot to do with secrets, whether it's the repression of the state or the repression in a family. And I make the connection between what happens in our families and what happens geopolitically, right? As folks will read. And so, you know, I belong to all these different underworlds, the underworld of the family and family secrets, the underworld of like gangs that I interviewed, like top level gang leaders in really scary places and hideouts or the underworld of the guerrilla organization that I belong to, the FMLN back in the day. You know, I no longer belong to anything now, but back in the day, I just, and I had this secret, like when I met you, uh, when, what year was that? And I know exactly when we met. It was 2008 because it was the day after the big presidential election when Obama got elected. So yeah, in 2008, I still didn't feel safe to speak about who I was. So I decided now, you know, I'm 57 now and then started writing the book when I was 52 and I was like, okay. If I'm not, if I'm going to tell my story, now is the time, and and I felt like it was a good time because there's a need, I think, for people to break the silences that limit us right now. I feel urgency about that. Yeah. If you look at the rise of neo-fascism in the United States, 
it's an urgent matter we have to deal with. And you look at COVID, if you look at the decline of the United States, you know, if you just deal with those, that's enough. But if you then look at the fact that waiting for us after we deal with those is climate change, we have our work cut out for us, to say the least, and uh, we're going to have to pull out our best stuff. And politically, my best stuff comes from having been a revolutionary. And so I wanted to share some of the spirit and the experience that that got me through epic levels of violence that people in the United States haven't seen since the Civil War or unless they went to World War II or World War One, Because the history of El Salvador has been that violent and it's been in no small part because of the United States. So uh, that's, those are some of the reasons I wrote the book. And I didn't grow up with those types of stories in my house because my dad never went to war and his father didn't either. So the book had a lot of brutal stories in it. Now, it also has some lovely stories. I think there's great compassion when you talk about your mom and your grandmother. Um, There's a little love story, too. Um, But I do want to talk about your decision when you went down there to fight because I did the math. And if you went down in 1991... You were like 27 or 28. And when I first heard that you were down there fighting, I thought maybe you were 19. You know, you were this young kid. But if you're 27, you've got some maturity. You kind of have to understand what's at risk. I mean, did you truly understand how dangerous it was or it could have been for you? No, I wasn't that mature at 27. (laughs) In fact, that was, if you look at the love story that's in the middle of the war. Yeah. You could see what a dumbass I was. You were. <laughs> you know, I was a 27-year-old dumbass. A woman fell in love with me. She was a, you know, former guerrilla fighter and a diplomat with the guerrillas. And I was in El Salvador doing work with the urban commandos. And I left, and I left her hanging. And then, well, you can, you know, I don't want to give away the story, but I didn't. I knew this woman kind of loved me, but I didn't know what love was, and I was a dumbass. So similarly, I didn't really know what I was getting into completely when I joined the guerrillas. I just knew I wanted to do something more than just help refugees and stuff. I wanted to fight fascists. And so I think that's an important message right now is the disposition to fight fascism, because even though Trump lost the election, his fascist base is completely animated and alive and, and unfortunately well. And we're going to have to politically find a way to politically solve the problem of the decline of the U.S. and the fascism that it's brought up. Well, when you originally fought, that was a more literal term. And now you're sort of fighting with your pen, right? You're an advocate. You're a writer. So at what point did you realize that writing was going to be the way that you really could make an impact, that you could tell stories and you could get get people thinking? I mean, like a lot of people listening and a lot of people in the world, everybody has a story and a lot of us want to write our story. I always had an inkling to write. I became a journalist in 2004 and then I started, you know, a long journalistic journey. Mm -hmm. Uh, And eventually I I thought I would write my story, you know, because I I had people who were writers say, man, Lovato, you have an incredible story. You should tell it. Yeah. Oh, nah, nobody's going to write my stuff. And, <laughs> and then, then then, after that, when I thought I could, I do have a good story, then I was like, no, nah, I don't have the ability to tell it. But what was transformative for me, and I would, you know, since this is a show about, you know, people's 
pursuits and their their jobs and their 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 what they do in the world, right? Mm-hmm. I think the most one of the most valuable things I learned was the power of commitment. Like there's a quote by you know Goethe, G O E T H E, the uh, German polymath of the early 19th century. Uh, brilliant guys, polymath, just genius. In fact, I would say he has a quote. I can't quote it exactly, but it was something to the effect of, you know, commit and watch as providence just aligns in your place. But until you commit, you really won't know what comes from commitment. And so I take that in a modern sense, in a contemporary sense to me, that when we commit, we, the most powerful part of us takes over the subconscious part so that when commit you know it's like you know have you ever seen somebody you grew up with who was kind of a loser have a kid Mm -hmm. and then they suddenly have a kid and that person is fucking disciplined as can be (laughs) something turns on later yeah something turns on and i would argue that what turns on is commitment and the subconscious organizing that happens as a result of that commitment. So I'm my mom's son as much as I'm my dad's son, but in terms of ferocity and and and, and passion and, and and giving myself to the things I believe in and want to do, I'm my mother's son. And my mother taught me how, what commitment was, beginning with her commitment to me that was un, unfailing, regardless of what a loser I was as a angry kid that I was. There are some really um, great stories that you tell, especially about being a teenager and the conflict with your dad, which is why it is nice to see all of that come full circle. But what about your mom? Did your mom know what you were up to back in 1991? My mom had a sense. She just, I mean, it's like my mom and with me and drugs. Okay, I hope you're not, I hope you're going to have some Christian audience here. Rated G or some shit because you got the wrong well, person hey, in her. You've got Christianity in the book too. No, I know, but if if, if it's a rated G thing, you got the wrong guy for no, your interview. Go so, for it. Okay. Go for it. No problem. So yeah, so it's like with drugs, right? I used to do drugs. I used to deal drugs. I used to have drugs in my house, mostly pot, sometimes cocaine. You know, because I didn't grow up an angel. I grew up down the street from the projects. I had a moment of the thug life and violence and stealing and robbing, et cetera, and dealing drugs. And so, you know, my mom would find my drugs, but she wouldn't say anything about it. She just would take the pot and put it in alcohol so she could rub her bones with it and her muscles. <laughs> Did she thank right? you? Did she pay you? Did you charge your no, mom? No, she didn't pay me. No, she took the cocaine. She showed my dad and she dumped it in the toilet. Nice. You know, but she also found drugs at work. She, you know, I remember it. I was like, God damn, mom, why don't you give me that stuff? I could do a lot with that. But no, she, so, but my point is like, my, just like that, my mom knew, I think had a sense of my, I mean, I brought home my then partner, girlfriend, you know, G, who's in the story. Yeah. And I told them, hey, look, folks, she's uh, involved with the gorillas that you've heard so much about. You know, everybody's heard about the gorillas in El Salvador, but nobody really knew a gorilla because most of us were clandestine. Yeah. So I brought her home. And my mom was expecting this, like, Che Guevara to walk <laughs> in the door, a female Che Guevara. Yes. And she was completely disarmed when G comes over and knows about the novellas and 
and is a really charming and beautiful person that she she was and is. And and my mother, kind of like, okay, well, I'm not even going to deal with that gorilla stuff, but I really love her. She's great. To the point where G, it's not in the book, but G was at my mom's bedside when my mom died in 2013. And we had broken up, you know, like almost 15 years before. Yeah. And so my mom loved G, and, and she was at my mom's. And so... No, my mom. My mom knew, but she didn't want to talk about it. She wanted to get into it. She was always. She. I. I wish we. You know, if we were on on camera, I would show you the escapulario that I have, that my mom gave me to protect me with Saint Judas, Saint Jude. Yeah. yeah. And my mom's prayers and Saint Jude are what got me through the epic violence and and adventures that are described in the book, from you know twenty five hundred miles and thirty years of war, death squads narco killers gangs and 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 other somewhat not somewhat very dangerous things that i've been exposed to as revolutionary as journalist and as activist yeah and in the book you even talk about how the story of el salvador isn't always well told you know, we talk about the typical stereotypes of guns and gangs. And so that's why I, I think if I read you correctly, you know, you wanted to do the people a little more justice by putting some compassion, putting some humanity onto these faces of the, of the people that we hear about in the news. So can you talk a little bit about what's missing in the media when they cover the stories in particular about people yeah. from Central America? Well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a that was a major reason for writing the book. It wasn't the only one, but... As a journalist, I, you know, the Columbia Journalism Review, which is a, you know, the preeminent organization that looks at kind of like news coverage in the United States yeah. and around the world. Um, but you know, there are other global organizations that look at the same things. But, but in the U.S., you know, the Columbia Journalism Review is very prestigious. So I did a, a story for them, an analysis with some volunteers of the coverage of the 2018 child separation uh, policy of Donald Trump, right, where he was separating thousands of children from their mothers. Mm -hmm. National scandal, people got really angry. Uh, some Democratic Party sympathizers organized protests against it, uh, not telling you that the Democrats were the ones who started caging and separating Central American children under Obama, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, in our analysis, we found uh, that you know, we were analyzing the coverage from the perspective of, okay, so Homeland Security statistics tell us that something like 90%, at least, of the children and mothers affected by this policy are Central American from Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. Mm -hmm. So then the journalistic question is, okay, how many of the sources in the stories are Guatemalan scholars, Salvadoran intellectuals, Honduran journalists? Mm -hmm. Central American lawyers, Central American nonprofit leaders. How many are in these? And we, we looked at, because one of the major stories of 2018, if you remember. So we went through hundreds of stories. And guess how many Central American sources we found in the stories? Maybe two? Zero. Zero. Okay. <laughs> Not a one. And so that is just gives you some sense of how skewed and... I would even say mythological and fictitious the stories you're getting about Central Americans are. So this is an example of like uh, why I wrote my book because it's it's atrocious what's happening. 
the truth is not getting out. Well, and another thing that you did, and this was several years ago, was teaching at Cal State Northridge, and you started an entire program, which I think is so important here in California, and there wasn't one to begin with. So tell us what you did there, because I think that's also a great story. You've got, it's funny, because we cannot attach a label to you, Roberto. We can't say, you're an, are you an author? Are you an activist? I, I, I don't know what I would ever call you, but you know, you had this rough life in, during high school, and which I do read about because it sounds like you and were elementary school. <laughs> well, but you sounded like you were a good kid when you were really young. You were really studious. I got yeah, that. Yeah, I was Mr. Peabody. I was put in gifted programs. Yeah. They put that label on me. That yeah. label messes kids up, I think. <laughs> yeah. Especially yeah. kids because it sets you off. Hey, look, you're gifted, but you're different from the rest of your loser culture. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's the message that they give to these kids. I, I was like, fucking, you have these little, you know, arrogant people that come out of these programs sometimes <laughs> if they're not prepared. But then you you turn around. And that's why I think it's so great that you do teach at the college level, because you you can speak from the heart. You can speak authentically from your experience. But tell us what it was like to get this program started at Northridge, because I think it's really important. Those of us that found the program, I mean, I was the bootleg founder, quote unquote, the founder. Yeah. I mean, bootleg. I say bootleg because I was doing it as an adjunct. Oh God, so, so you I got paid like nothing. I did everything that a chair of an academic program yeah. did, except go to the bank with the same check. <laughs> so like, I, you know, I counseled students. I, I recruited faculty. I went to boring meetings that helped establish the academic minor. I spoke publicly for the program. I dealt with the president, I dealt with the chancellor of the Cal State system. But I didn't do this alone, mind you. This idea surged from the students themselves at Cal State Northridge before I was even there. Oh. But, you know, the, the, the program was envisioned by the students with the help of people like Rudy Acuna, the founder of Chicano Studies. So Rudy being Rudy, a smart guy that he is and visionary, he invited me to teach a class knowing that I was who I was as an organizer. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I started organizing alongside the students and I recruited some former enlightened, former revolutionary friends of mine. <laughs> Is that and, what we call them? Wait, f- enlightened former revolutionaries. I like that. Yeah, because because the, remember, this is in the early 2000s, late yeah. 90s. The war had ended like eight, nine years before. And the distinction between the enlightened revolutionary and the dino revolutionary dinosaur yeah. had already been established in our minds in the post-war era. Yeah. So I was like, I picked the best and the brightest that I could find who had kind of the intellectual capabilities, the political capabilities to organize with us, and something else that I didn't figure out until we were all eating vegetarian meals one time, and I realized, damn, it was not the vegetarianism, but what the vegetarian reflected about them and other things that they were kind of evolving their humanity beyond the traditional post-war identity. So with that, we organized and we always saw the organizing of it as an extension of our work during the war for social justice. It was like, you know, this community did not have an identity in the United States. You know, it's still in formation, but now it's getting clearer. 
And so we thought, well, why don't we create an academic discipline that speaks to the needs of this community in terms of culture, history, contemporary events, geography, literature, film, even science and technology, right? What's, what's this community's relationship to science and technology? You and a group of other Latino authors have started a movement. Tell us about that, because you had some progress last year, but I want to hear where you're headed. Yeah, um, you know, they, you know, everybody's, a lot of people remember that book last year, right? About this time last year, the biggest sensation in publishing was a book called American Dirt. And it was written by a white woman who has declared herself white in every interview up until just before publishing her book, when lo and behold, she discovered hey, I've got like a 16th of Puerto Rico, so I'm going to call myself Latina now. So that book was criticized by a brilliant writer friend of mine, who's now a friend. I didn't know her back then. Uh, Miriam Gerba wrote a critique of the book mm-hmm. I saw that. called Hey, Pendeja, <laughs> you're no Steinbeck. <laughs> and really provocative and smart, you know, um, headline and a smart piece. So it caught my imagination because like, I knew what she was doing. She was like showing the way that our stories have been co-opted by, by, you know, white writers and by a white publishing industry that doesn't want to really let us tell our own stories, right? You know, being the organizer I have, you know, I organized a campaign to take Lou Dobbs off of CNN, uh, organized another campaign to get rid of the illegal alien word from the Associated Press style book, which is the Bible of journalistic usage. Is it, has it been removed from the AP? Yeah, yeah, it got removed years oh, ago. Oh, good for you. So, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've been involved, I've either conceived of or led quite a few campaigns since, you know, since the war, where I learned strategy. Mm. And, you know, I also got a master's in business focused on strategy. Yeah. Which, which is what allows me, by the way, to be who I am as far as having an unfettered tongue. I don't <laughs> give a shit, you know? I mean, if I have economic independence, I don't have to give a shit as a writer or as a public persona, right? And I, I strategize that, which is I think could be valuable for your listeners if, <laughs> you know, want to be artists, artists or journalists, yes. but not be sold out and, and compromised and selling out. Good Morning America was talking about us and New York Times and, you know, major media. Of course, bad news for me is this is right before my book was going to come out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what did they, what did Macmillan say? Oh, they capitulated. You know, we did a campaign and they capitulated. We met with them. And I'll never forget Five Foot Miriam walking in, scaring the crap out of these big, a room full of like 13 execs from one of the biggest publishing powers in the United States and in the world. And, you know, we met with them and then we started negotiating behind closed doors. We agreed. We made an announcement. And then COVID hit and their president tried to renege on the on the on the deal and then he ended up getting fired and 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 they they kind of returned to the table and they've you know they've been trying to improve their game uh with 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 latino community uh and they have in some ways but that's not really the issue the real issue was the power of our community that we helped channel yeah yeah so you know when we talk about the central american experience in el salvador what do you want people to think about twice the next time they hear a story on the news or they see something how can people you know adjust their thinking um basically when you see a central american story in the news turn it off it's bullshit (laughs) 
<laughs> well, that doesn't help. No, no, no. But then you can say, go on the internet and find something beautiful about us. That's my main point. Like, the main phrase to refer to Salvadorans in the English language has been and remains a, a phrase from Joan Didion. Oh, yeah. She went to El Salvador for about two weeks, spent most of her time in the air conditioning auspices of the U.S. Embassy. And, you know, she's a brilliant writer, great. And, you know, she writes, you know, with a certain gravitas, and you feel like, wow, this is deep. I mean, I felt that when I read her Salvador book yeah. when I was a kid. But I always felt awkward because, okay, that doesn't really jive with my experience. <laughs> but she, her, her phrase was, terror is the given of the place. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, that's deep, man. There is terror in El Salvador. And there is. But then, like, as I grew up, and I was like, you know, and I did what I did. I was like, shit, yeah, I've experienced, I think, a little more terror than the two weeks that she spent in the air-conditioned offices of the embassy. I have, I have Salvadoran. I've been down most, most years of my life in many ways visiting or living. So my main thing I want people to remember is this, that love is also the given of the place. Yeah. That when you look at Salvadorans and all this talk about terror and violence, that's really the dark background against which our power and beauty can be more clearly seen. Like the way the dark in between the stars makes the stars brighter, right? Yes. That's really what I want people to see is our our poetry, our power, our our love, our creativity, our fun, our, you know, despite everything, we still can laugh. We're still very picaresque. You know, we have a very strong sense of humor. Anybody that knows us, yeah. a lot of cursing. <laughs> you know, there's stories, there's funny, we're funny. You know, so I didn't want to tell an untrue story. So I had to include the terror, but... My book's as much about the sublime and the beautiful of us as it is about the terror and the ugly of us. You know, I, I don't talk about gangs in these mythological terms. There's Some of them are killers, but most of them are not. Most of them are children. But they, they're poor kids who don't have any other options. I know that because I was a kid here in San Francisco who got into some trouble, got, was in violent stuff, was robbing people, was stealing cars, and then dating girls in the car, stolen cars. <laughs> um, you know, but... And that's nice that you call it dating. I was dating in <laughs> stolen cars. I mean, I wasn't... You know, I would, I would, I would, I'd, I'd, you know I'd meet young young women and say, hey, you want to go out? I, you know, I'll pick you up in my car, and I'd pick them up, and it'd be like a stolen Nova or some shit. <laughs> you know, and it's funny, because, like, one time this woman saw, like, these, these like, obviously women's sunglasses like older women like those really kind of wait are these yours i said no 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 it's just my mom's <laughs> you know and, and, and we, ended up, we ended up leaving the car on Bernal heights here in san francisco and just never coming back to it never coming back to it i had left another car <laughs> like there's this famous alley in um on balmy street that has all the murals it's beautiful I, yeah I, I i messed up a car you know, we were all kind of crazy, and I smashed it into a wall. The radiator broke. The whole engine got screwed up, and we ended up just dropping it in this colorful alley and booking. 
Anyway, I got off track. I... No, I'm, I'm just going to have to. I'm thinking of the conversation with my daughters uh, before they listen to this episode because I, they need to meet you. You know, I mean, when I first met you, I had just had little ones at home and now they are teenage girls. But um, wow. I, I do want to say that when I read your book, I had to have my laptop next to me or my phone so that I could look up, okay, where did this take place? Who, who is Roque Dalton? You know, I so there's a history lesson here. So I'm just telling people that when they get the book, and I hope they do, to, you know, give it some time because there's some deep stuff here. But I think it's, it's an interesting history lesson for us to know uh, about what's happening right here at home and in our backyard, but right here, you know, because we're in Los Angeles. I hope. Folks also find the funny, the beauty, the love story. Oh, oh, please. I, I'm Roberto, Jovan, Muscoil. I mean, really? <laughs> <laughs> I, I cracked up out loud when I saw that. And I could I could just imagine. I need I think I need more Jovan? pictures. What? Remember Jovan? Yes, I do. That's why I cracked yeah. up. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, they used to sell it over at the pharmacy, man. And that was all we could afford for cologne. You thought you so were I had cool. A date with this, you know, this guerrilla woman in this secret hideout, <laughs> and I had to put on my secret weapon, Jovan Muscoil. Oh my God! Yes, so that's when I cackled out loud. So, well, yeah, Roberto, so- I, I can't thank you enough. This has been so great talking to you. And um, oh, what's next for you? Gosh, tell me what's next. Well, um, I've got some interest in Hollywood of my book, telling my story. Yeah. You know, I wondered yeah. about that because I joked with you on Twitter, like, who's going to play you in the movie? And then I read the whole book and I'm like, I don't know where the Hollywood ending is here. But I do think it would be wonderful if they could pull out a story. And There's only you... two men I can think of right now who could play me in, a, me. in, a, in, a, in a fair way. Who? You know, I'm a bald, <laughs> middle-aged man now, right? 57. <laughs> so it would have to be either Vin Diesel or The Rock. <laughs> Oh, that's all. That's all. Okay. Yeah, no, that's just my exaggerated view of my otherwise unseemly body that I'm carrying around <laughs> with my gut these days. <laughs> so I don't know. But, you know, that, no, there's interest in Hollywood in the book. And I've started getting interested in writing scripts. I have a whole bunch of stories that I that, that, that are true stories, but I can't tell them in nonfiction because it could be compromising for certain people. For sure. And, you know... Um, Turn them into fiction. Yeah, no, that's what I'm thinking. So, and some of them could be like screenplays. Yeah, inspired by. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Well, you've left a lot to inspire us, Roberto. Seriously, thank you for joining us today. Okay, so I'm going to put well, your thank website. Thank you, Diana. Thanks for 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 for, for sharing the time. Please oh. send me the link. I want to see it. Yeah, you got it. Okay, you take care. All right. Thank you for listening to Job Talk Weekly. If you like the podcast, and we hope you do, the best thing you can do is to subscribe and forward it to your friends. We'd love to hear what you think. So please rate and review us or send us a quick email to info at jobtalkweekly.com. See you next time.